At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Very good, Mark. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. And I'm pleased to announce that on this episode of So Very Wrong About Games, it's going to be one of our many train game extravaganzas, because today we're going to be talking about all the major hardcore train game series, namely the Russian Railroad series and Ticket to Ride, the only major train game series worth talking about. Yeah, I've never heard of this 18xx thing. Ticket to ride all the way, baby. That sounds made up. I bet it doesn't even have plastic trains. How could it be a train game if it doesn't have plastic trains? Exactly. I felt the temperature of my room drop 10 degrees. I know. I was about to say, I I can hear the dinging upstairs already as the emails and messages flow in. Totally worth it. Anyway, this is a board gaming (laughs) podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And our feature game this week is Ultimate Railroads which is an omnibus version of Russian Railroads that is going to be coming out soon. So with Walker, that in mind, what did you play this week? Mark, I got to play a review copy of a little portable card game called Mindbug. This is by Steph Ellis, Richard Garfield, Melvin Hagen, and Christian Kudal. It's put out by Nerd Lab Games. And if you're looking for like a single deck that you can carry around, of a, of a dueling type card game that you can play in 15 minutes, then, then you might, might want to give this a try. I explained to them when they were sending it that this was not a game that, you know, fed into the way I like to play games. Right off the bat, you're just, it's very simple. Either you're playing a card out or you're attacking with one card that you already have out. And they all have one stat and the highest stat wins. If it's a tie, they both die. And they also have all sorts of different abilities and keywords that they have as well. Everyone has three lives. And if you attack and the person can't defend or doesn't want to defend, then they take a life. And after three, they're gone. 
And then also everyone has what they call two mind bugs. Hey, that's the name of the game, mind bug. Everyone has these two mind bug cards right off the beginning. Whenever anyone plays a creature out, you can just say, well, I'm going to use one of my mind bugs and now that creature is mine. So lots of take that, lots of back and forth, lots of silly abilities, but it plays super quick. Like I just said, it's very easy to teach. Either you're playing a creature or attacking with a creature, three lives and you're done. Not my thing, but... Check it out if you like any sorts of dueling card games. Well, there are some games that approach dueling card games that you tend to enjoy. For sure. There's a lot of things I like. I just don't like the take that and, you know, having to memorize the person's deck or they just happen to have the exact counter they need to, you know, to to counter the thing that you've been working up for. It's like, okay, I've got this attack. Mm. I would like to try it out. Oh, but I need these six other things to happen before. Okay, well, I'll, you know, spend six turns getting all this ready. It's like, oh, I'm going to try this, you know, not great attack, but I think it sounds cool. And out it comes, no, I counter. That kind of thing, not for me. I got to play, as I intimated, Ticket to Ride. I played specifically Ticket to Ride Germany. This is a version put out in 2017. As you know, Ticket to Ride has had many semi-localized versions with various gimmicks attached. And I have to say that the central gimmick of Ticket to Ride Germany is very much a three steps forward, one step back kind of situation. The way that it works is, it's the standard rules of Ticket to Ride, with the addition that whenever you connect a root of any length, you get to grab a colored meeple that was put during setup on each of the cities. And at the end of the game, there's area majority scoring based on each color of meeple. The good news about this is that it definitely tends to break up some of the dominant degenerate strategies in the base game of Ticket to Ride, namely only going for the six-length roots that are worth a huge number of points. Furthermore, the map itself helps curb this a little bit because the long-length roots in Ticket to Ride Germany are not gray as a general rule. They're specific colors. And so just fishing through the deck and trying to make do with whatever trash you get and make long roots, which is a not particularly exciting but very successful technique in base game Ticket to Ride, is not apt to work. The problem that I have with it uh, is simply that it doesn't really work well with two. That is one of the many virtues of the Ticket to Ride series of games. They tend to be very, very good with two players as well as being able to scale upwards. But when you have area majority scoring, unsurprisingly, with only two players, it's not at its strongest. I played it with two, and that was definitely my impression. I liked the way the meeple scoring shook out in theory, but in practice with two players, it was not particularly interesting. Failing that, I've got nothing against Ticket to Ride games. They tend to be very pleasant and fast-moving. And despite the fact that it then reminds me of one of my least favorite Beatles songs, it's generally a pleasing experience and certainly a very approachable game like many others. In point of fact, the modifiers that you add to this version, as opposed to, say, Ticket to Ride Europe or Ticket to Ride Merkland Edition, the additions here are very, very easy in terms of rules load. And anybody who's played the base game, it takes literally about half a minute to explain how these variations work. And I never really liked some of the additional ones, like moving passengers around always struck me as a little bit weird, and further to which the random pulls of trying to finish tunnels always rubbed me the wrong way. There's enough randomness in the card drop ticket to write as it is. You don't need to occasionally fail being able to build a tunnel. I don't even know what that's supposed to be representing thematically. I've never built a tunnel myself, but I don't think the way that it works is you get to near the end of the tunnel and you're like, oh, well, maybe this will work, maybe it won't, and then keep digging. At any rate, so Ticket to Ride Germany, I think, is a pretty solid variation on the Ticket to Ride formula, although, again, shame about the lower player counts. Designed by Alan R. Moon, put up by Days of Wonder, like all the other Ticket to Ride games of 2017. I got to play a game on Board Game Arena called Chocolate Factory. This was developed by Hirsch, designed by Matthew Dunstan and Brett J. Gilbert, and it's put out by Alley Cat Games. 
So the hook in this one is the fact that you have this moving conveyor belt. Like every turn you have to run your little factory three times and you automatically get these coca leaves and you develop into like basic chocolate. And then from there you get upgraded or do all sorts of things depending on cards that you've drafted from the middle. Every turn you're, you're drafting a worker and a piece of equipment. Did you say coca leaves, Walker? I think you meant to say cocoa leaves. Cocoa leaves and coca leaves are slightly different. Yes, slightly different. Sorry. Yes. Maybe I was, I've been eating too many coca leaves. All right. So, so you're making chocolate cool conveyor belt mechanism the other interesting thing is depending on the worker that you draft will allow you to run certain victory point cards because every worker is tied associated in a way to a particular uh, scoring card so it's sort of a decent you know decision space there it's like well i really want this ability on this card i really need this this factory piece but i want that worker because i can really score on that because you get to save some of your chocolate in the way your engine's working i think overall it was very inoffensive and i wouldn't mind playing it again in the actual real life you know sliding the conveyor along and upgrading and and or even even real time i, I think it would work a lot better question yes if you are unable to keep up with the production of chocolate on the conveyor belt are you allowed to then stuff the excess chocolates into your mouth I wish you can stuff the basic chocolate into the fire to stoke it because there is a whole economy where you need to – that's sort of like what limits what how many of your machines you can run. They all take a certain amount of coal, so you can burn basic chocolate to run other machines. I don't think that's how that works. I don't think so either. <laughs> I think it was just hopeful thinking on some chocolate makers. And that was Chocolate Factory. <laughs> that was, in fact, Chocolate Factory. I get to play Cockroach Poker. Big fan of Cockroach Poker, as you know, favorite, one of the favorite bluffing games of the podcast. We do love our bluffing games. I've commented before that at one of the open game nights locally, there's a gentleman with developmental disabilities who comes around and we make our efforts to include him in any game as possible. And Cockroach Poker w went over real, real well, I have to say, in terms of how smooth the experience was. In terms of rules load, of course, it's it's very, very light. I like to play with non-gamers and children and works very, very well on all those and I have to say, he did uh, really, really well. <laughs> uh, now, of course, the joy of Cockroach Poker is there's only one loser and many other winners. And the loser was subjected to one of the greatest traditions in Cockroach Poker, which is the bullying. It's like, ah, their nerve appears to be cracking. Let us repeatedly feed them cards and see how they crumble under the pressure. Uh, but this was actually the other experienced player at the table who played Cockroach Poker several times before, so we didn't really feel too badly about it, even if we might be inclined to, which I don't think any of us were. And Cockroach Poker has a lot of great social dynamics, even when half your face is covered with a mask, because that was one of the things that I immediately realized. Here we are playing this bluffing game, and half our faces are covered while we're playing it, because we're playing indoors with masks. But it nonetheless turned out very, very well. I think it's been too long since I played Cockroach Poker. We didn't have quite the numbers for Skull, but Cockroach Poker works at uh, lower player counts as well. Great time had by all. Highly recommended as always. Cockroach Poker by Jacques Zeme. So another like game that I played, it's called My Farm Shop. This is designed by Rudiger Dorn and put out by Pegasus Spiel. And, you're, and it's just very much, you know, you're running your engine type thing. But it, it has a very Machi Koro feel to it, but it does something that Machi Koro doesn't, where Machi Koro, you roll the dice and you hope you get what you need. In this game, you get to roll three dice. And so there's a little, I know it's silly, you know, what extra die, big deal, but there's decision space. You get to pick any two, and that that's what engine is going to run. And the third 
uh, die that's left over will let you uh, get a new card. So you're picking ah. one one die to get a new card. The other two dice will run everyone's number six, you know, one through tw- uh, two through twelve, right? So it's pretty interesting. You know, you're either try- you're putting in scoring cards into your thing or you're getting more resources and you have a limited number of spaces. You have like this little nice little uh, fruit stand. And that's how many goods you can hold. And there's all sorts of different modules you can play. I definitely want to try out all the extra stuff. We just played the very basic version because we just want to, you know, give it a quick run to see how it played. Like I said, I really like that little hook about the extra dice because I, I did enjoy my few plays of Machikaro many, many years ago. And this just opens up that decision a little bit more. It's not, you're just not just locked into the randomness every roll. Well, it also increases the likelihood that you're going to get twos and twelves and all those other less frequent results. That was one of the problems I had with Space Base. You know, everyone explaining Space Base like, oh, well, you know, you can go risky and try for that 12 or, or get that. It's like, why? It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's a trap. I'm not an expert in space space, but let me tell you, the people who've invested energy and or resources into making sure that their 12 was amazing, I'm just going to sit there and trigger my threes and fours all day long. But So adding that extra extra die seems to be salutary, at least for the variety of effects. Does the game take advantage of that? Yeah, for sure. You have your the very nice big cards and the two, and the, because the two, the, the two 12 space is the same space, which also oh. helps out, right? And that was my experience with my farm shop. I get to play Royal Visit by Reiner Knizia. Now, anytime Reiner Knizia puts out a new game, one must always question, is this actually a new game or is it not a new game? This was not a new game. This is Times Square, which he originally put out with Cosmos in their two-player line. But this is a version being republished by Yellow in a very, very lovely new edition. It's got marvelously evocative screen-printed meeples of various members of the royal court, a jester and a wizard and some guards and, and the king. The board itself is merely an unwrapped scroll, and the art I found aggressively delightful. I was a big, big fan of the card art and the art on the meeples, and it's just a very colorful, compelling fantasy world. Now, the way the game works is it is a tug-of-war game that superficially is somewhat similar to another arguable tug-of-war game, En Garde, but in point of fact is very different. The goal of the game is to get the king over to your side of the board, and there are a whole bunch of parameters in that. The guard, the king has to be in between the two guards, so you want to move the guards so that the movement of the king works better in your favor. The jester and the wizard each have special powers, and the rule of the game is you can play any number of cards so long as they're all of the same suit. And so there's a certain degree of hand management as well, but also certain acts of desperation because timing matters a great deal in addition to overall positioning. And I quite enjoyed it. Played a couple games back-to-back. Very lovely game, very simple to explain and understand, and it's got lovely moments of tension where you make a big play out to move the jester somewhere so you can trigger it next turn, but you hope that your opponent can't counter immediately. You can have some information about what's in their hand because if they just played out a whole bunch of cards of one suit, you can expect that they're not going to have a whole bunch of others in reserve of that same character, but you can never be certain. So it's got an extra little bit of tension, which is very, very nice for simple two-player games of this ilk. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a visually delightful package that's that's very accessible and tense and with some interesting trade-offs. So in other words, it's what you would expect from the partnership of Reiner Knizia and Yellow. And I'm very much glad that I was able to pick it up. And I encourage anyone who's a fan of Reiner Knizia's work to give it a try in some form or another. And that's Royal Visit, which is a reprint of Times Square. This version being published by Yellow this year. We streamed two games on Saturday. First one was Denia, designed by Thomas DuPont and published by... Blam! So this is a great 
sort of dice worker placement, I guess you could say. You're it's these people of the land, and they've found these giant mecha robots, and they've found a way to power them, and they're now the robots are helping them develop the land and cultivate it. So you're choosing a die, and that's going to tell you what robot one through six is activating. It's sort of like Spyrim sort of style, because all the robots are on this nine by nine grid, and you're putting them in between the cards, and they're either helping build that card up because you've decided to start building a different building or getting you more resources. And then meanwhile, you're plugging in these chips that do trigger other abilities that you can do during your turn and trying to get scoring conditions. I sort of want to get to this table so I could sort of be done with it, but I just, I really enjoy it. It's got a great color palette. It looks fantastic. It does sort of break down. I think you noticed this last time we played it. It's like all about, you know, just pushing on those chips and cycling those abilities over and over again and getting the artifacts out. So it is a little bit rough that way. But I'm willing to give it one more try, so maybe we'll give it to the table again soon. And this was a review copy given to us by Blam. The second game we streamed was The Siege of Rundar. This is designed by Reiner Knizia and put out by Ludo Nova. And this is a defense game. So the box opens up. The whole bottom of the box is this giant castle. has all these different sort of courtyards in the middle. And you're playing dwarves, and you're defending this castle from orcs and trolls that are attacking. Nice, straightforward, Reiner Knizia style. You've got 12 cards in your deck. You're discarding two. You're dividing the 10 cards in half. So you'll have five cards for the next two turns. So the first five cards, you play them out. You do what the cards say, which is moving around the castle, getting resources and putting them on the weapons so you can upgrade your deck and killing orcs and then if you have enough resources on the cards you can replace a card that you haven't played yet then you pick up your next five cards play those like next player next turn you play the five cards and then you shuffle all your cards so the whole game you only ever have 12 cards discarding two and then having two sets of five for the next two turns i think it plays very quickly uh, everyone at the table really enjoyed it. You're rolling dice to kill orcs and trolls, and you have some siege equipment that's attacking you. So it's one of those things where when you flip the the, car, the enemy card up and it's a siege machine, it goes in front of you, and then you have your turn to try to get rid of it, and everyone else gets one turn to try to destroy it before it comes back to your turn and then does something very nasty. Typical defense game where there's you know six different ways you can lose, but only one way you can win. And that is you're trying to escape out the back, so you're digging out this big tunnel, and the deeper you dig, the goblins come streaming out of your tunnel, so you're like fighting two fronts. I think it's a great little game. I'm glad I picked it up, and I can't wait to get back to the table. Is that why my tunnels and Ticket to Ride keep failing? Is it goblins? Did you check for goblins? Okay. Check for goblins. More train games should have goblins in them. Having read the rules but not played the game, I'm intrigued by this approach to deck building. So this is the second deck builder that Knizia has done after the quest for Eldorado, which I think is a marvelous deck builder. And this idea of having a fixed deck size, but nonetheless having a strong emphasis on deck building seems potentially interesting to me. Yeah, I really like it because, like I said, you are replacing a card that you haven't played yet. So as soon as you get it, you can play it immediately. Not only that, you can sort of have it sitting there with the resources on it and let the person that really needs it or what they're building towards. Sort of what we did, we had one person that was the digger, one person that was close combat, and one person mm. that there's this whole shooting mechanism as well. So we sort of divided it up and it seemed to work out all right. 
there was this bunch of mercenary cards that you can give up as well because the orcs, I like how it's not this big complicated system. The orcs slowly move in. When they get to the center, for every orc that gets there, you lose gold. It's all about ha- trying to save your gold. And same thing with the siege machines. They do what they do and then they go away. You know, if you don't blow them up, you don't have to like, worry about them pounding you every turn, right? So it's nice that way as well. But I really like the fact that you can just leave the card out there and let the person who needs it pick it up. You are risking a little bit because that's what the catapult does. It, it uh, If it triggers, it's going to destroy one of your five card crafting slots permanently for ah. the whole game and the card that's there and any resources you've put on it already. It's really striking that despite the fact that there are more and more co-op deck builders, so many of them are locked into this idea of, well, you can buy cards for you and then you only play them. And one of the things we keep talking about in terms of Xenoshift, and it sounds like Rundar does something akin to it, why can't you just buy cards for other people? It seems like such a, a, a simple way to introduce cooperation, encourage specialization, and possibly in a fun way, and player interaction. I And yet so many co-op deck builders just do not let you do that in any way. It does fall a little bit into the the thing we've talked about before where you just look at your hand and say, well, obviously this turn I'm going to be digging because those are the cards you have, or sometimes it's obvious what you're going to be do, but sometimes there is a pending danger that needs to be taken care of right away. So you sort of have to puzzle out your hand and figure out how you can do that with the cards you have. Hmm. I'm looking forward to giving it a try. That is the Siege of Rundar. Finally for me, I played one deck dungeon, Abyssal Depths. Abyssal Depths is an expansion that was put out this year by Chris Cheslick at Asmati Games. Once again, disclosure, Chris Cheslick is a personal friend of mine. I'm a huge fan of one deck dungeon. And it's sundry offshoots, so I was keen to try this expansion. When I first saw the expansion, I was a little bit concerned because I immediately got vibes of Archfiends. Archfiends was the first expansion to Shadow Rift, the co-op deck builder. And Archfiends was produced in such a way because designer and publisher were switching to a new manufacturer. And so they couldn't get the cardstock to match. As a result, the entire system is purely ancillary to what else is going on in the the game. The effects of Archfiends on the base game of Shadow Rift are very good, but the problem is, and I'm not saying this is purely because of the components, but the net effect is it is easy to forget and it feels like an entirely separate thing. And so I was somewhat concerned when I saw Abyssal Depths because there are no new cards in Abyssal Depths. They're all the same card stock as the character cards and the summary cards, which is to say these oversized cardstock, call them placards. And I was concerned that this was going to be similarly ancillary in that it was going to be another board off to the side that you could either forget about or would be difficult to manage. Now, it's definitely not difficult to manage. Like everything else in One Deck Dungeon, it's very streamlined and very uh, very approachable. The problem is, is that in my experience, for my tastes, it was relatively ancillary because what Abyssal Depths introduced is number one, new characters, which is always for the good. I love the new characters and the same brilliant art style for the characters of One Deck Dungeon has persisted throughout. But it also introduces these antagonists who don't need to be fought. And if you, in fact, do fight them, they heal automatically back to a certain set level every time you descend into a deeper level of the dungeon. 
And so the impression that I got on my first play was that tangling them with them was mostly a waste of time. I mean, yes, you get benefits for fighting them down. They harass you less aggressively for the remainder of the floor. But generally speaking, I already had my plate full dealing with other threats. And I was just more than happy to just ride the negative effects they gave me rather than devoting the considerable effort necessary to bring them down a notch, especially since they would just go back up a couple notches sooner or later anyhow. And then they disappear for the boss fight. So as it is, you're focused on the individual challenge card that you're dealing with. You've also got to worry about the universal effects of the dungeon. You're, of course, managing all your own skills and items. And then there's this other thing off to the side. It's not too much in terms of a rules load. It's just that cognitively, perhaps this is an experience by its talking because of the number of times I've played One Deck Dungeon. It just felt like another thing that didn't fit with everything else. And as a result, I didn't spend a whole lot of time interacting with it. It was just another set of negative effects that occasionally triggered. Because one of the things that I generally have problems with in One Deck Dungeon as it is, is sometimes I forget to deal with the universal dungeon effects, which is part of the core game, and it feels the same thing. It's another thing off to the side. So I very much like the additional variety that it offers in terms of the new characters and nothing else. And if you're a One Deck Dungeon expert and you're looking for an additional challenge and you've already gone through the core game content and or from Forest of Shadows, then Abyssal Depths is probably for you. But for me, I do not think I will be going back to that mode necessarily by choice. I might give it another shot the next few times I pull out One Deck Dungeon, but it's entirely possible that in the middle of the game, if I'm still just ignoring it for most of the time, I might just jettison it midstream. And so that was my experience with One Deck Dungeon, Abyssal Depths. Those are the games we played this week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So let's talk about cards and them be different is a nice segue into my first thing, which is Underworlds. I am so angry about this, Walker. Please go on. Well, it's a good news, bad news. Mark, say if you're a listener of our show and you are big into Underworlds and you're sick of our light talk of it and don't want us to talk about it anymore because there's nothing there for you well you're in luck because i will not talk be talking about it ever again and if you just never played underworlds and you're sick of us talking about it well that's also good news for you because well, i'm never talking about it again <laughs> this is all because this new set they've come out with they've decided to change the backs of all the cards thereby games workshop style making everything you've bought so far pointless and useless it's so bizarre to me. Initially, I assumed that it was some sort of money play to get you to buy some sort of opaque card sleeves, but they're not even hawking their card sleeves all that much. In previous sets, what they did was they obsoleted all the universal cards, but you can still keep your faction-specific cards from previous sets. And nominally, they've still done that with Harrowdeep. But the problem is, if I want to play, say, the Skaven, or if I even want to play the Ghouls, which are a more recent set, my two favorite warbands, what I'm obliged now to do is either get opaque sleeves so that everything matches, so that I can play with universal cards, or just accept the fact that they're going to be radically different. It's so baffling to me. And, it, and just to be clear, so people understand, this isn't that they've changed printers or something. This is not a subtle difference. They redesigned the card backs. They're entirely different now. Well, from what I've read, is they brought in some... New people, bigger people, or people that are more organized, They've and they want to push this tournament scene and have it more organized. And they have started 
it off being organized. They've put out this whole roadmap ahead of time. They've shown what they're, it's coming up this whole for the next three quarters and it's all more sort of streamlined and organized, but I'm just out. I can't afford it. This, this new set is $150 for oh, wow. two factions and some cards that you have to have because they're all new and I, I can't keep up. I don't have time to keep up and I, don't want to play just the old stuff that is so disappointing uh i i knew it was only a matter of time games workshop even if they have been putting out better stuff over the past few years they'll find some way to games workshop it up yeah I, but i'm i'm feeling that this is just is good news for people for hardcore underworld people the fact that it's now being it is still being supported it's all this fresh stuff's coming in and it's being sort of like guided in a direction not just sort of you know because you've seen how they put out the cards it's like just decks everywhere cards coming out of every nook and cranny and you know there was no idea which ones to use and which ones were not and it looks like they're trying to just you know all those cards are now gone okay we've had enough there's no there's no way we can you know you know errata all those cards are fixed you know we're starting over this is where we're going to go which is you know which is fine but i'm just not going to get on board I don't know if i'd say it's fine but yes it is definitely one way to solve the problem of a meta burn it to the ground on Kickstarter right now is a project I'm very enthusiastic about. It's called Steam Up. This is being run by some locals, a couple of Vancouver designers. It is a game about dim sum. I adore dim sum. It is uh, my favorite meal of the day. I try to have it at least three times a day. And in the game, if you go for the deluxe version, which I think is probably the way you want to go, you get steamer baskets and little plastic pieces of food for your hagao and shumai and... It's, oh, I can't wait, Walker. It, I don't, I, it, this is one of those only times I, I understand all those beer enthusiasts who love all those games about making beer. Finally, I see where they're coming from. This is for the first time a food game that speaks to me on a deep personal level. All those games about making wine, even that, even Scoville, that game about hot, making hot peppers. I think I finally owe them all an apology. This is, I, I feel spoken to. I feel seen. I feel heard. Well, if you do like a. We'll have to do a theme night one day. Well, like one, I'll have I'll sushi boat in. You'll have dim sum, and we'll have. I think there's a bunch of other type games like that. We'll have a theme night. It'll be great. Kitchen <laughs> rush. <laughs> so that is Steam Up. It is on Kickstarter now. So Mark, you know that I am a fan of Underworlds. So is Huey, and David Gregg is now working on Nightfall 2.0. So that's exciting news for me. I'm looking forward to it. I love Nightfall. It's got this interesting chaining mechanism where all cards sort of combo off. I need this interesting color combination to have them all play out. It was sort of a werewolf, vampire, zombie type game. Deck building. Still enjoy playing it. So I'm looking forward to 2.0 coming out in 15 years. (laughs) Hopefully next Saturday we'll be streaming Dinosaur world we should have that in shipping notices here and if not we'll be playing siege of rundar instead this episode is a multiple of five so we're just going to briefly mention that we have a patreon you can find us on patreon.com this is going to be the final week of our archipov day sale where if you pledge for 10 months you'll get two months free we are going to be sending out in the next couple of weeks a massive quantity of games to our overlords and commissioners because that's one of the benefits you can get for a patreon pledge So look forward to that, and we thank you all for your support. This is also an episode that is 10. So every 10 episodes, I'm going to have to 
talk about how you can help us out on the podcast because you've decided to make it so we can't run for your board game geek award anymore. <laughs> so, so now if you want to have us review a game, just send a message to publisher, or if you've purchased a game based on what we've talked about, you can send a message to the publisher and say, Hey, you know, I bought your game because I heard about it on so very wrong about games. These are very simple ways you can help us out. Thank you very much. Walker, you're so thirsty. It's every 10 episodes, Mark. Like, that's 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 not very thirsty. That's quite dry. <laughs> and that is all the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game, which is Ultimate Railroads. Ultimate Railroads is designed by Helmet Only and Leonard Lenny Orgler and put up by Hens and Gluck. It is going to be coming out later this year. It was available at Essen. And we have mostly been playing the Board Game Arena adaptation by Ellen Alaskavaya, who is from Ottawa, so local representation for the win. Russian Railroads was originally published in 2013, and it had two published expansions, German Railroads in 2015 and American Railroads in 2016. And Ultimate Railroads consolidates all of that content and also introduces a new expansion, which is to say Asian Railroads, which we will have some comments on later. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Russian Railroads slash Ultimate Railroads? Ultimate Railroads! This Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. You want tracks? Well, we got tracks. Not three, not four, but five tracks on tracks. That track your tracks that you're tracking. Tracks! You want an honest one now? No, no, no. You you can be honestly unhelpful as opposed to facetiously unhelpful. All right. So what you're doing in in, uh, Ultimate Railroads is you're advancing your five tracks down three separate paths while you're making sure that they're all supported by locomotives. But wait, don't be like a crazy person and think that you can advance any tracks. You have to unlock your tracks by advancing down the tracks. That (laughs) is ultimate railroads. All right, here's the thing. I believe I'm the one who coined the dismissive phrase tracks on tracks on tracks. And Indeed, the fact that they are literally called tracks doesn't help things. Here's why I don't find Russian railroads too tracky. The trackiest of tracks to me are the ones that have specific different costs between different areas, and they're usually in a sideboard that is either conceptually or sometimes literally disconnected from the core activity that you're engaging in. Russian railroads has a couple of salient benefits. Number one, it is entirely obvious how and why one proceeds up a track. You literally just expand your rail track. And number two, it is the core activity of the game, arguably. Even in those cases where you might focus on something else, we'll talk about the industry track later, but expanding the tracks is the game. And in those contexts, I'm willing to be a little bit more forgiving. And suffice to say that whatever problems I have with Russian Railroads, and I do have some problems with it, it it doesn't strike me as the trackiest of track games. No, and why do you want to advance these tracks? And it's, as I said, as you advance your tracks down this path, you're unlocking different color tracks because it's sort of like this gauge of colors. And the, and the more you get on, the, they start to get worth more and more points. But not only that is that you're unlocking this sort of like this combo game. You're unlocking all sorts of things as you advance down the track. Like uh, the second track, if you get to a point, you'll get something. And the third, if you get even further down or, you know, it's all different colors. They all 
do different things. They get you more track or more points every turn because it's one of these games where you add up how far you've gone down the track at the end of every phase because it's a worker placement game. When everyone's placed their workers, you do this big scoring round. And there's also track multipliers and there's places where you can get more workers and there's these things called keys that you can get and idea tokens so there's all these things that are triggering out triggering off you advancing down these tracks the core idea namely the rail management is very simple and i quite enjoy because you there are five different colors of rail effectively and they can't uh every improved version of rail cannot go past the lesser version ahead of it so in other words you start off with, in the ultimate version, what's called a wood-colored rail, and eventually you unlock your green rails. And your green rail is actually worth points, as opposed to your wood rail, which by itself can only trigger various things. It's not worth points by itself automatically. Your green rail can only advance as far as your wood rail gets. And then eventually you might unlock your bronze rails, and your bronze rails can't go past your green rails. And then your silver and your gold. That is one thing I will note about one of the changes between ultimate railroads and Russian railroads. The color scheme is vastly, vastly better. In original Russian railroads, it was more or less five colors of white to gray, whereas in Ultimate Railroads, it's very, very clear. It goes from wood to, to green, and then bronze, silver, gold. I found that definitely a step forward in terms of usability and approachability. And that core idea, that core element, I find quite pleasant. Now, in the process then, as you're advancing on these tracks, there's all this other ancillary stuff which is really where a lot of the rules load comes, and that's one of the unfortunate things about the game, quite frankly, from my perspective. Yeah, there's two kinds. There's not just workers you can place out. There's these coins as well. So there's a lot of spaces that sort of like combo. You need a combo of resources, like either some a worker and a coin or some that just require coins. So it's a very, I'm not sure why they went in this direction. I'm wondering if it's sort of like you can starve people of the coins. Like, you know, they can't take those actions. So it sort of opens up some different decision spaces or something. I'm not sure, but it does lead to some some cool parts of the game. I don't know how cool it is. Uh, I, the coins are kind of like stored workers because like any other worker placement game, you can't save your workers from round to round. Coins can always sub in workers and coins you don't lose from around to round. So then that aspect, the differentiation between coins and workers is nice. The key thing about starving people of coins and the coin game though is the purchase of engineers. Purchineer, uh, engineers are worker spaces that only you have access to and the, unfortunately, the salient reason why you purchase engineers most of the time is because they are worth a massive endgame score bonus based on whoever has the most and second most engineers. And I really feel that a lot of the jockeying for turn order and a lot of the jockeying for coins is purely so you can stay competitive at this endgame bonus. It feels artificial, it feels un unusually narrow, and it feels a little bit scripted, honestly, much of the time. And it's one of those, again, extraneous things past the track management that I don't find terribly satisfying. And there's a couple cool parts about the engineers. The fact that there, you'll see the three that are coming up, one that yes. you cannot use because it's the one that's being purchased this turn. Then the next two that are coming up, you can actually just use them sort of like temporarily that turn while they cycle along to the purchase slot. And there is another sort of like two-part thing like you have like we like i talked about at the beginning you have locomotives and they are all given a number and it sort of gives you how much you can activate along your track so if you have six points of locomotives on a particular track then only the six front spaces will get you points or abilities or it's just a sort of well like some another, abilities some abilities 
and sometimes in order to unlock something, you just need to get your rail that far. Sometimes you need to get a rail of a certain color. Sometimes you need to get both your rail and be able to cover it with a train. And those trade-offs and those management and the way that new things enter the system, again, most of the things related to the core track management, I think is quite clever. When you upgrade one of your locomotives, because you have a couple of one locomotives to start the game. And when you upgrade your locomotives, you have the option to moving these ones down to a different track, or you can sort of retire them. And on the other side of these one uh, locomotives is a factory that that will allow you to add up these values of these engineers that you have, which sometimes can be a ridiculous amount of points. It's true. One of the satisfying things about Russian Railroads for me is that although the game allows for combos, it's not like you're going to be having a combo every other turn. You know, compared to something like Witchstone or a number of other medium-heavy management Euro games where it feels like every turn you're just nesting a whole bunch of actions, in Russian or Ultimate Railroads, these combos happen, but they happen seldom, and when they do, usually something very consequential happens. And so it feels more satisfying, and it also means that the pace of the game stays up a little bit higher. And indeed, one of the things that can be one of those very consequential combo moves is if you're able to set up triggering the right factory at the right time in the right way. It's very Aristotelian. And that factory in particular can be hugely consequential. It, again, is another slightly artificial way to emphasize the importance of the engineers. And while I agree with you that the rotating field of extra action spaces is neat, it gives some variety from round to round. The fact that you need to stay competitive the engineers just because sometimes is one of those aspects that I don't feel integrates as well with the rest of the design. No, I think it falls back on what we've talked about with when when these worker placement games are designed whether or not you make all of the games, all of the spaces equal in value. And I really feel in this game that is not the case. I really feel that there is a set three to four spaces that are definitely more important than the other spaces that are out there. Oh, it's very transparent. I mean, just look at the way you get more trains and factories. The first person to go and get a train or a factory can get a train or a factory for one worker. The next person who wants to do it either has to pay two workers or three, case depending. And so the game is very, very upfront about here are all the worker spaces. Some of them are just flatly better than others. And I'm to be frank, I'm okay with that because it leads to a certain tightness. You care about the order in which you put out your workers. This is especially important because there's not a whole heck of a lot of player interaction past that. In point of fact, there's vanishingly any. So I kind of appreciate how tight the worker placement is. Let's quickly dovetail into the turn order there because since we're talking about it, it I think that has... Uh, a nice hook too because you there's a place you can place your worker to advance you to the front of the line or second in line and everyone shuffles down but not only that after everyone has placed their workers you can now take those workers off and put them in an open spot the seventh turn of the game because the turn order you know there is no eighth turn so you put this tile over top of the turn order thing and it it makes a new action space so you don't lose an action space they actually have a mechanism that you know makes it something else i thought that was very interesting as well there are a number of ways to cleverly make it so that the turn order stays dynamic and it it's a it's an appealing space. Even Agricola tried to do that back in the day, right? You go there and you become star player and you can play a minor achievement. But this actually feels a lot more dynamic because what you're giving up literally is tempo for this round to get tempo for next round. And it's a trade-off, but it makes the uh, the turn order spaces very much in demand. They're usually not the last ones taken. They're usually grabbed up near the middle. And I quite like it. I, I, I appreciated that feature of it. What I want to talk about now is the is the coolest part, I think, so far. And 
what we're talking about here really is four games. There's Russian railroads, German, Asian, and American railroads that were all four separate games, and they've put them all into one. And you think that, well, you're going to decide which of the four games you're going to play, but that's not how they, they did it. They took all of the different mechanisms that made each of those games unique and turned them into modules that are now playable on all of the tracks. So now you pick which track you want, which modules you want to play, and it all sort of intertwines and works together. So you can play whatever combination of things that you want to play. I have no experience with American Railroads. I played German Railroads once when it was first released as an expansion. And one of the things that I very much appreciated about German Railroads was that it it is one of those great expansions that really addresses a lot of the problems with the core game. Because when playing Russian Railroads, I I feel like a certain sameness starts to set in. The only real variability you have is precisely in the order of the engineers that they come out. And the engineers are not something to build an entire strategy around, at least not in terms of the specificities of a particular engineer. Having lots of engineers is great, and you can build a strategy around that, but the specifics of the engineer worker worker places, you can't build a strategy around that. And so the German railroads gave a lot of variety because you literally get to alter the tracks and play with the composition of the tracks as you expand your railroads. And that's as a result, it's the favorite of a lot of people who are very deep into the system, and I can absolutely see why, because it's a very helpful shot of the arm to the system. Yeah, uh, I played it once as well. It's on Yukata. And it also has, not only are you like, sort of uh, advancing your extensions out, it also has the one track that forks off. So you have to make this decision halfway through the game. Are you going to go left or right? And, you know, change up, you know, you could do it different ways in different games. I thought that was a nice touch. One thing I find a little bit strange about Asian railroads, because we might as well talk about that now, is, and this is a minor thing, but... German railroads with just various rail lines in Germany. American railroads, same thing. But Asian railroads is three different rail lines in three entirely different countries. Uh, so China, Korea, and Japan, who uh, parenthetically do not have a shared infrastructure. You might get a hint and a half about how they don't have a shared rail infrastructure because one of them is an island. Well, I was going to uh, say, even Japan doesn't have a shale, a shared infrastructure there's like different companies and there's like even in tokyo itself there's four different rail companies and you have to switch in between them that they don't link together right and and of course in russian german and american railways they did indeed sort of paper over differences between different railway companies and different times of railroad expansion and for different purposes of course but the notion of taking the entire continent and treating it the same way that you treated germany and america and russia eh, a little bit ooky the other thing that's also strange is that Asian Railroads, of the, the the four different ways to play, has arguably the most shared board, because it has a shared industry board. The idea that the entire continent would, would, would get a shared industry board is furthermore conceptually odd to me. Anyway, uh, I do like that shared industry board for what it's worth, because it introduces a little bit of player interaction, a little bit of added tempo considerations. Uh, there are some... Uh, potentially confusing little edge cases about how carts get moved around. But long story short, it adds another wrinkle to how factories are manipulated and how you move along the industry track. I thought Asian railroads was quite nice. I still prefer German railroads because it gives you that tremendous degree of variety. But the slight added bit of player interaction that Asian railroads introduced was appreciated. Yeah, quick brief talk about what industry is. On Russian railroads, it was this, uh, yet another track that you could move along. And when you when you got locomotives, you could either make them as a factory on the bottom of your board or increase your your output, and they just give you more combos that you could trigger off more points or more actions or more stuff. 
And in this one, it's a common board that everyone plays on, and you're putting out these maintenance carts, which will give you more actions. Instead of taking a normal action, you can retrieve this cart, which lets you trigger it again. It sort of just gives you more options to do stuff. And it increases the combo quotient. More frequently, you're going to have those turns where it's like, okay, I trigger this cart, which triggers this other thing, and then I'm going to build a factory, and that triggers something else. And we tracks. I think we should take a break here now, Mark, which I thought was very funny, because that's what they have in the rule book for Ultimate Railroads. <laughs> it's halfway down. They say, okay, coffee break time. We've introduced you to quite enough rules for now. You need you to sit back and, and, and soak in what you've, you've heard so far. Board Game Arena implementation doesn't have the American map, and there's all sorts of blasting and a stock board and coal modules. So lots, even more stuff than we haven't even tried. But we haven't talked about the fact that you have to track up to 500 points. Like, I was trying to think of other games that I've played where you get 500 points that you have to track. This is one of my... Yeah, track. This is one of my concerns with playing Russian Railroads and the other railroad games in person, which I've done a fair number of times. And the pacing of the game just grinds to a halt. Indeed, the core of the game, as I keep emphasizing, is very, very simple. People understand what worker placement is, how the tracks work. You just explain to them how the rails advance and how the trains cover the rails and how that scoring works, and people understand that. But then there are these two bits that really grind the tempo of the game to a halt. One of them is the scoring every round, because calculating what your score is, it's very easy on Board Game Arena, so credit to that. But in person, you have to go through each track and calculate, okay, these two spaces give me one point. This space should give me two points, but it's under a doubler, so it's going to be four. And on top of that, there are these other spaces that give me three each. Okay, that's this track taken care of. And then you repeat that process three more times every round, and everyone does this. And it's almost as bad as those simultaneous play games where you figured out your two actions and you're waiting for that incredibly slow player. If you happen to have a relatively more simple score system, uh, uh, setup... Or if you're just faster doing this arithmetic, there have been cases where it was faster for me to do everyone's scoring than for me to wait for for other people to do their scoring. Because look, not everyone has the ability to count up in their head, okay, one from here, two from here, three from here, two from here, etc. at the end of every round. And by the end of the game, oh my goodness, it can get super tedious. So yeah, I, I will play this game anytime on Board Game Arena. I will be very hesitant to try it in real life, that is for sure. Especially the Ultimate version, because they do a very good job explaining how all the different components are to be sorted and organized. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of different things to sort out based on the version you want to play. And there's a lot of little trailing components. This is the other second major criticism I have about playing the actual experience of playing the game. All those strange edge cases, and I don't mean edge cases in the sense of how does a special ability trigger. I'm talking about unique tokens the advantage cards, these endgame scoring cards. And when you first read about it, it's like, oh, endgame scoring cards. I know how those work. No, you don't. Because in Russian Railroads and the other Railroads game, these are endgame scoring cards that are only obtainable through these things called idea tokens. What are idea tokens? Oh, something else. So it's literally this weird edge case token that triggers these other weird edge case decks. There are two of them, two different decks, one of which gives you bonuses right away, maybe a special power, or maybe a one-shot, who knows, and one of them is endgame scoring cards. None of this is particularly complicated. This is not a rules grit problem. This is a component creep problem, and this is a problem of failure to integrate with the rest of the core clean systems. And so at the end of the day, what you have is a, is a number of very pleasant and smooth experiences rounded out by, quite frankly, weird ancillary stuff that kind of floats off in the periphery and you might often forget about until it's too late. 
I can also see like a, a Praga problem happening as well, because once you start doing all of these combos, Board Game Arena reminds you, it's like, oh, you need to move, you know, you forgot to move your white track two spaces. Whereas once you, if you're playing the game in real life, there's a lot of these things that you might forget to do. It's like, I do this, I do that, that gets me this. And then you go on and do something else and you've forgotten, you've got these other bonuses that you have not dealt with because you triggered so many things on your turn. It's true. I'm more concerned about this in some of the play configurations. Again, I think that, that that problem might occur more frequently in the Asian version as opposed to Russian. Because in Russian, again, you, you seldom have combos. And when they are, they're, they're pretty major events. And so it's okay for the game to slow down every once in a while when you've done something significant. But I agree with you. The, the, the core idea of managing these rail lines is very well done. The action spaces are all very straightforward. And the tempo of the game is very fast, except for when it grinds to a halt, which is just difficult in terms of components and in terms of arithmetic. So ultimately, I'm in the same place you are. I think Russian Railroads and the Ultimate Railroad series is a fine game that I'm happy to play under the right circumstances, which is to say on Board Game Arena or some other implementation that will take care of the scoring and be able to easily present to me visually what's going on. In other contexts, this is a very expensive product. Ultimate Railroads... So so these base games were extremely out of print and fetching inordinately high prices in the secondary market. Ultimate Railroads MSRP is going to be in excess of 110 American dollars. And uh, that's a lot of money for a game that, quite frankly, although I'm happy to play, is, I don't think, worth that much. So I'll be happy to play it anytime. Board Game Arena, hit me up. <laughs> I've got three games still going. I even played a quick game today just while working on the podcast. It is very fun to because there's all sorts of different paths that you can lead. And I didn't really even get into the Asian tracks, how they sort of push you down different different ways because they lock up your locomotive spaces. So they sort of force you down tracks that you might not normally use. All sorts of different ways you can try things. Ultimate, ultimate railroads. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon, Twitch, and SoWrongGames.com. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Welcome, dear listeners, to Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. In honor of His Grace, Air Dr. Dr. Vincent, Earl of Diesel, Esquire, OBE. Today we are talking about The Legend of Korra, Season 2. Walker, your thoughts? The love triangle pushes ever further on, Mark. And poor Korra just does not know what to do. <laughs> Center of attention, flowing locks of hair, troubling teens. You know how it goes. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't actually, but I mean, I found season two crushingly disappointing. Uh, I feel like the writers were like, did you like season one? How about the same character arcs with no growth whatsoever? 
Once again, Korra still listens to bad advice from someone who's transparently manipulating her, only this time it's even less plausible because the person who's doing it craps all over her people while he does it. Mako makes the same relationship mistakes all over again, in part thanks to convenient amnesia, which is always the recourse of top writers. And the notion of restoring balance, absent a global war to clarify, is increasingly whatever the showrunners want to pull out of thin air. After loving season one, I found season two to be a massive letdown. It was pretty rough. Season three is going to be very interesting. I'm waiting to hear what you think about it. There's lots of different storylines. There's very interesting art style that they go on to. And yeah. The only interesting parts of season two and the two episodes that most people seem to like the most are the ones that go into the origin of the Avatar. Why is this person called an Avatar? What is that notion of balance originally posited? And in terms of interesting art styles, the art in those two episodes was really, really quite interesting. It also served to explain what the heck happened at the end of season three of Avatar The Last Airbender with that weird lion turtle. So that part I very much enjoyed. But honestly, the rest of it, ugh. Yeah, the the very first age, that whole segment they did i thought was fantastic a lot of watercolor art a lot of very interesting i just i can't believe they did something like that you know in a a child's sort of cartoon they just went full-on art deco and really enjoyed it thank you very much listeners for joining us for spike presents masterpiece theater join us next week where we will talk about presumably the legend of Korra season three will it just be like season two only worse time will tell at parker our purpose is simple We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.